Um, if you have a Bible, uh, you'll have to flip a lot today because, uh, again, we're, we're in the uh, Ten Commandments, whereas we're going through Exodus. And today, um, our text in Exodus is only two words, Exodus twenty thirteen. Um, if you don't feel confident in your, uh, what do they call those, the kids who do Bible stuff, uh, Awanas, your sword drill, Bible drills, uh, you can tell I was not an Awanas. If you don't feel confident in your flipping speed, we will have the text on the screen. Um, you know, it may, it may seem uh, odd that we're spending so much time, and some of you guys are tired of hearing this, that's okay, it means you're actually understanding it. Uh, it may seem odd that we're spending so much time in the law, right? The Ten Commandments are part of the law of God, um, because, you know, as Christians, we are under grace, and, and that's very, very clear in the New Testament. And that's true. We are not saved by the law. It's all what Jesus does for us. Um, but we can make a mistake to think that that makes the law and the Ten Commandments sort of an irrelevant museum piece. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, I have not come to abolish the law, to, but to fulfill it. He says, in fact, if you teach someone, if anyone teaches anyone, I think that's his exact words, to ignore the least commandment, that person will be called least in the kingdom of God. Okay, so clearly not an irrelevant museum piece, according to Jesus. So what are we doing? I want to say, I want to say what the Ten Commandments are not. The Ten Commandments are not ten things you're doing to audition for eternal life. Okay? You can't prove that you deserve eternal life to God. That's an impossible task. He gives it to us as a gift in Christ, period. The Ten Commandments are not ten things that if you do these ten categories well enough, your life is going to go real nice by the hand of God. That's also not what they are. They are God's guidance, God's fatherly instruction on how to live a life of love. Paul tells us the heart of the, of the law of God is love. And so that, that's really what we're looking for. Um, as we're going through the Ten Commandments, is, is not just how do we not break it, but how do we fulfill it in love? Let's read our text today. It won't take long. Here we go. There you go. Actually, the Spanish gets the, gets the Hebrew closer. Okay? In, in Hebrew, it literally is no murder. Uh, in English, you shall not murder. All right, let's pray. Sermon over. Kidding. <laughs> Father God, be with us this morning as we, uh, as we look at your word, as we uh, wrestle with some difficult topics, some complicated topics. I pray that you would give us uh, grace as your people and as a, as a community that we would come together to a deeper understanding of what your word would have us do. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there was once a guy named Karl Hagenbeck. He was German, if you couldn't tell. He was from Munich. He was born uh, late 1800s. And his dad had a little stall in the uh, marketplace in Munich. And he kind of found his life's calling one day when his father, who was like an importer, he would import things from places and sell them in the market. He got his hands on four sea lions, live sea lions, and, and, and put them on display in the market. And like, the huge crowds gathered from all over the region to come and see these sea lions. Of course, Carl loved the sea lions. He had never seen anything like it. He was down in Munich, nowhere near an ocean. And also, it was, he saw how people responded. He's like, oh, if you get animals from other places, people love it. And so he devoted his life to becoming an explorer 
Now, he explored places people already lived. So, you know what I mean? Right? So he like went to Papua New Guinea, for instance, which for a European, that was extremely exotic. Not exotic at all if you're from Papua New Guinea. They're like, we live here. <laughs> and, and so he would bring back uh, these animals that he would get from sub-Saharan Africa, from Papua New Guinea, from places that are really far from Munich. And, and, you know, they would go to zoos, which were very crude affairs at the time, animals in cages, that sort of thing. And he, he said, you know what? Seeing an, an, a lion in a cage is just, it's not, you're not seeing a lion because you're not seeing it in its environment. And so Carl Hagenbeck had the idea to build environments, to make this huge like theme park. It was the first theme park, the first wild animal park, where they built desert environments and jungle environments. And, and he would bring these animals, and, and, and people could see them right in like the way they're supposed to be seen. A lion isn't in a cage anymore. It's up on a rock in the middle of a veldt. And so this was not only like a amazing, this was before the internet, the TV, all that stuff, right? It was 1907 when this place opened. And it wasn't just seeing the animals, but it felt like you were traveling to different locations as you went through the park. It was, it was pretty grand. And, and it was a sensation when it opened in 1907. People came from all over Europe, not just Germany, to see this new thing. If you were there, when you're going through the park, you know, you'd see a hippo swimming around in like its hippo environment, whatever they call it, or, or you'd see, you know, a family of zebras, uh, you know, in another enclosure. But then you'd come to another enclosure that was a little hut. And in there you wouldn't see zebras, but you saw a family of humans. And they were not wax figures. These were actual, live human beings, because not only was he bringing back exotic animals, but what he considered exotic humans. And he put them right on display next to the animals. How's that feel to you? Does that make you uncomfortable? Does it fill you with disgust that human beings are being displayed in a zoo? I want to point out that they were well-treated. They weren't harmed in any way. They were fed. Still not okay? Why is that? Because that's not how you treat a human being, right? You just don't treat a human being in the same way you would treat a family of zebras. Why? Because they're human. They're different. This concept of human rights, that, that you can't treat a human being the same way you treat an animal. We all, it's deeply instilled in us, right? But you know, it's not a given throughout human history. The, the, the fact that we value every life, right, that we're, we're kind of unique. And you, may, you would make a mistake if you said, well, everybody, all societies have a value. No, they don't. The ancient Romans, <laughs> the ancient Romans, when a, when a general would celebrate a triumph, that means he won a war. You know what's part of what they would do? Is they would have people walking with placards, and it would have a number on it. 
It would be the number of villages he destroyed or commanded the surrender of. And then there would be like a number, it was like 100,000. And this was the number of civilians he murdered. They celebrated it. They're like, yay, you killed so many civilians. Good job, Festus. How about that? And it's not, not just the Romans. The Spartans, of who we are for some reason enamored in the West. You know what they used to do as part of their training for their warriors? They had a whole slave class, the helots. They would hunt them. Like, let them free in like a little wilderness area and hunt them. You had to kill a helot to be a full-fledged Spartan. Hunting humans. They were like, what's the big deal? You see, every human society values some human lives. Maybe if you're from my city, maybe if you're from my nation or from my class. But this idea that all human beings are valuable simply because they're human, whether they're young or old, rich or poor, from my nation or from another nation, it doesn't come to us from the tradition of the West. Quite the opposite. It also doesn't come from the East. Check out the Assyrians, check out the Mongols, check out the Babylonians. Not a whole lot of value on human life. It also does not come to us from science, from the scientific world or the scientific method. Okay? In fact, there is a hard move in academics right now against human rights. Like, I'm, this is not far-flung conspiracy theories. You could look this up. The uh, uh, chair of medical ethics at Princeton University is a guy named Peter Singer. He wrote a book. It's called Desacralizing Human Life. So he says, if we're all just animals and we're a more evolved animal, why are our rights any more important than the rights of a dog or a cow? Now, in his defense, he's saying treat animals better, not treat humans worse. But he does say that, you know, an infant up to a month old, you can end their life. And that's fine. Or if someone has dementia or something like that, you should end their life. So there's that. Not exactly a, not exactly a full-throated human rights uh, sort, of, sort of endorsement there. You know where this idea that all human beings have rights come from? It comes from the scriptures. It comes to us from the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.27 says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The reason that all human beings are valuable, the basis of human rights, is that we are made in the image of God. Whether male or female, young or old, rich or poor, you get it. This is the most revolutionary doctrine in the whole Bible. The sixth commandment, no murder, is all about how we are to treat the image of God in other human beings as well as ourselves. Okay? How are we to do it? Now, we've used uh, an analogy throughout the Ten Commandments of a dartboard. The dartboard's in, right? There we go. Here's the dartboard. All right, so this commandment is telling us where the wall is. You have so little regard for the image of God that you would break, uh, you, you, would, you would take life, right? That's breaking it. That's hitting the wall. 
Uh, but there's, then there's keeping it, which is protecting the image of God. By, you know, and then there is fulfilling it in love, and, and we'll get to that. Okay, so first we're going to talk about where the wall is. Now, I want to say we're going to cover some sticky issues today, some complicated issues, some issues that whether you're here or whether you're listening online, we're going to disagree. As always, you have the right to disagree with what I say. Okay? That is okay. And we can still be in community. And, in fact, so much so, uh, if you want to get coffee and, you know, talk it out over some croissants, I'm really up for that. Those of you who have taken me up on this and disagreed with me, you've discovered I am not brittle at all about this stuff, and I'm happy to talk about it. Okay, so first of all, uh, we are not to destroy the image of God. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's shedding innocent blood. Genesis 9, 5 through 6 says this. It says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So the shedding of innocent blood is forbidden. Now, there are exceptions to this in the word of God, too. One is if someone is guilty of a capital crime, right? For instance, right here, it says, if someone commits murder, they have forfeited their life. Now, that doesn't mean you have to execute someone for a capital crime. It means it's allowable. We'll say more about that later. By the way, you might get offended today. In fact, if I do my job at all well, you get everybody, both sides, whatever, whatever your political leaning, just it's coming. It's okay. It's good for us. Uh, the other one is if, uh, is if you were participating in a just war, right? Uh, that's the other exception to this. And we'll, again, I'll talk more about that later and offend everybody. Uh, so destroying the image of God, it's the shedding of innocent blood, but it's not just the taking of life. It's also dehumanization. It's, taking, it's denying someone's humanity. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's the commandment. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So that you fool, it's, the, it's Aramaic raka. It's, it means empty one. To say you're nothing. Right? To deny that someone is worthy of dignity is to breach the sixth commandment. That's, that's the wall. So, um, give you an example of both. If you ask many Americans, what's the total dead from the Iraq war, the one that, that began in the early 2000s? How many people died? And, you know, if someone follows the news, they will tell you five to 6,000 people. Okay, and some of you might be like, yeah, that's right, isn't it? Five to 6,000 people is total American war dead. Right? That's American soldiers or American, uh, what do you call them, contractors who lost their lives. The number of Iraqi civilians who were killed in that war is something around 400,000.
So it's not only the loss of innocent life, but not even counting them, not even recognizing that human life has been lost. See, that's, that's, that's breaking the sixth commandment. That's so far away from love, it's on the wall. It's in breach. So what does it mean to be on the board? Well, it's to protect the image of God, to protect the image of God in others. First of all, to protect life. Um, Deuteronomy 22.8, which is a verse you all know, I'm sure. <laughs> when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You did that for devotions this morning, right? <laughs> so what's going on there? Who are these fools falling off of roofs? Well, in the ancient world, and still in a lot of places today, the roof is like the front porch. It's the hangout spot. It was breezier, get a nice view. You know, there's lots of room up there. And so you had people over, you're hanging on the roof. Um, I think they did that in Indiana Jones, the first one. They're hanging out on roofs. It's just like that, okay? And so the idea is that, hey, it's not just you, you build a house and say, it's your job not to fall off my roof. You build a parapet. You build a wall so that you are preserving life. So, you know, things get a little loose on the roof. People don't fall and get hurt or die. Right? That, that's, that's your obligation, not their obligation, because uh, it's your roof. So it's to protect life. And it's also to protect dignity. Isaiah 1, 15 through 17 says this. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So what was their failure? Was it that they were killing people? No, it's that they were participating in oppression, they were not seeking justice, and they were not protecting the fatherless and the widow. You see, so, so to, to keep it, it's not only to preserve biological life, but to preserve dignity, to protect dignity. I heard... Um, one of my favorite stories I've ever heard about the use of $50 of concrete. Might be the only story I've heard about $50 of concrete, to be honest with you. Um, so, uh, like 12 years ago now, uh, the Mexican government sent out concrete trucks to some of its most remote, unreachable areas. And, and the reason was this. The children in these areas, they, the doctors were discovering they had huge uh, infestations of parasitic worms. And these worms were robbing them of nutrition so their brains were not fully forming right. Uh, they were missing tons of school because they would get diarrhea, right? And, and, and so cognitively, and, and it, was, it was part of this cycle of poverty these folks were caught in. The solution was $50 of concrete. The reason is they lived in houses with dirt floors. And especially when things would get wet, these parasitic worms could just come right up through the floor and infect the children. And so when they, they dropped $50 of concrete at all these houses, they would show them how to spread it around. Right? They would just dump it right at the door. And then they'd show them how to spread it around their houses. The floor would harden, and voila, you no longer have a dirt floor, but a concrete floor, and the worms can't get through. And the results were that there was an 80% reduction in parasitic infections among kids. 
There was a 50% reduction in that, in that diarrhea that was so dangerous and kept them out of school. So school attendance jumped hugely. And there was a 96% improvement in their cognitive development after this program. All because of $50 of concrete. Right? That's keeping the Sixth Commandment. That's not just worrying about biological life, but also people's dignity. So we not only avoid destroying and protect the image of God, but there's a bullseye. And that's to be a life-giving people. Okay? Not, just, not just you don't take it, and not just you protect it, but, but bringing forth new human life. Genesis 128 says this, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is talking to our first parents. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, that have dominion doesn't mean destroy everything. It means care for everything. God's original plan before the fall was that human beings, his image bearers, would fill the earth with his image. And so when you are bringing forth new human life, shout out moms, or you are adopting a child, you are supporting new biological life. That is part of being a life-giving people. And also, of course, supporting human flourishing. Some of you guys are teachers. You are supporting human flourishing. Some of you guys uh, uh, you know, are mental health professionals, physical health professionals. And, and it's not just that you're only preserving life, but helping people flourish as humans. And also, this is really important and can get left out of this conversation, it's to support spiritual life. 1 John 5.11 says this, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. So when John uses this word eternal life, it's the Greek word zoe, it doesn't just mean everlasting life, even though that's included, but it's life the way God intended it for human beings before the fall. Life without Life without meaninglessness, life without alienation, right? The full life that Christ came to bring, to bring us. So, part, you know, introducing people to Jesus, helping people go deeper with Jesus and strengthen their faith, being a community where people can come and hear the gospel and, and have eternal life is part of hitting the bullseye on the sixth commandment. So when I started, it was like, no murder. You guys are like... Great, I keep this commandment. I haven't killed anybody lately. Um, and by the way, um, whether one of you guys or somebody listening online has broken the sixth commandment and you know, taken a life in a way that you're responsible for, there's forgiveness for you. Right? Uh, I, the, the, the fact is, is we have had people listening to the sermons online who were in prison for murder. And uh, I don't want anyone to hear that if you break this commandment, God's love for you is done. That's not true at all. Okay. So everything I just said is founded in God's word. It's not super debatable. Okay. You guys might take a couple of uh, uh, points with, you know, want to discuss my exegesis on a couple things. That's fine. But the image of God and how we're to treat it in the word of God is very, very clear. Okay? It's not just biological life. It's protecting dignity and so forth. But I'm going to start upsetting you now. 
this is the part where we're going to kind of have to go into some issues. And, and, you know, again, you are free to disagree. I ask for grace as we talk through these things. Um, yeah, maybe I'm building this up too much. But, uh, so let's talk about it. All right, so first of all, what, what in our society would count as the taking, the shedding of innocent blood? the breach of the Sixth Commandment in its most extreme manifestation. Because we have this issue of execution, right? And the Bible does allow, in certain cases, for the state to take someone's life. However, and that made some of you upset. That's okay. I'm going to accept everybody else now. In the United States, the death penalty and who gets it has far more to do with your class and your race than it does about the severity of your crime. Okay, that is, you can look this up. The most predictive factor is race and class for who gets the death penalty. The same crime committed, okay? And for that reason, you need to be really, really cautious about supporting the death penalty. In ancient Israel, they did not, they were not able, like these were little farming communities. These were not big states that could afford to imprison someone who's guilty of a, of a, of a, a capital crime, right? War. We just had a war breakout yesterday. A new one. In, uh, in Israel. War is not if you are participating in a just war it is not a breach of the sixth commandment however it is the duty of every christian every follower of god if it is an unjust war if it's a war of self-interest for a nation to be a conscientious objector okay so just make it clear world war ii yeah we were attacked we responded just war i don't know if all of the conduct of the war was just that's a different matter But then you look at, like, the Spanish-American War and the Mexican-American War. Those were flat-out land grabs, okay? There was no two ways about it. There was no real, that we weren't attacked. We we picked a fight so we could get land. And that would be an example where where if you're a Christian, you need to sit it out or even oppose it. Um, Reckless driving, okay? This this might... uh, might apply to us even more. Texting and driving, being irresponsible while driving, you know, uh, you're, you, you had a little too much of something and you're getting behind the wheel. Like that would be a breach of the Sixth Commandment. Everyone's favorite topic, abortion. We all agree on it. It's a real easy one. I love talking about it. <laughs> Kidding. All right, so here's the deal. The reason I would be reluctant to talk about abortion is not because I, I'm afraid of offending anybody. I offend people all the time. It's part of the job. But the, the, the conversation is so poisoned by political tribalism, right? Really, especially Christians, have been used as pawns by political players uh, with this issue. Like, we've moved on their chessboard. They've moved us, right? And... A lot of the time when you hear discussions of abortion, it's like, it just sounds like the the party platforms of either side, and that tells me people aren't thinking. And here's the other thing. 
and this is especially why I don't like talking about it, is because chances are someone here or someone listening online has had one. And to talk about regardless of what your views are, that's a very difficult and painful experience. And it's a traumatic experience for someone. To talk about someone's pain, like it's debate club point scoring time, is the height of uncompassion. However, I do think it's important to talk about, especially with regard to the Sixth Commandment, because some of you guys are, uh, are medical professionals. This is a live question for you. Some of you guys may be making a choice. You, you may become pregnant or are pregnant. It's a live question for you. Many of us are citizens and voters, and so it's a live question. And so, what about it? Start with where we agree. Except for extremists on one side or the other, everybody agrees that fewer abortions is better. And you could actually see that in the time since uh, Roe v. Wade was first passed, or first decided, rather, uh, there has been a decline in the, in the total number of abortions, right? And, and both sides actually want that, except for a few wing nuts. I also want to say that there's a difference between a moral position and a political position, right? Being against abortion morally or pro in favor of abortion morally versus what you believe should be done in terms of laws and cases and the rest of it. Um, here's the thing. For 2,000 years, the church has always been against abortion. You may have heard on NPR or something like that, that, that like, the Christian church just became against abortion in the last like, 50 years. That's just not true. Abortion was practiced in the ancient world, and from the earliest days, it's very clear that the, the people of God were opposed. And it was not a political issue, all right? But I've got, uh, what, wherever you are on that spectrum, you know, I realize we're on both sides of the issue. I've got questions for both, vis-a-vis -vis the image of God of the Sixth Commandment. If you are pro-life, right? and you believe it should not be allowed, right? Abortion, in almost all cases, should not be allowed. I have a question. Then what about the issues within our society that makes that choice make sense? What about people who are caught in generational poverty and are worried about how they're going to put food on the table for that child? If your answer to that is, meh, you may be keeping one part of the Sixth Commandment, right? The respect for biological life, but human dignity, not so much. And you may say, well, the government shouldn't be doing that. Well, great. What's the plan? If the government shouldn't be providing food and shelter and that sort of thing. Well, what, what is the plan? I'm fine. If you, if you think you're like a libertarian, you're like, government shouldn't even exist. Great. What then? Just... To heck with them. We care about them while they're in the room and they're on their own to starve to death uh, when they're out. 
doesn't really work with the Sixth Commandment. And if you are on the pro-choice side of things, you believe that in, uh, in most cases, if not all, it is okay to terminate a life in the womb. Uh, so just wanted to clear something up real quick. There is no serious moral philosopher or scientist who denies that it is a human life. Only people on Instatalk are like, it's not even a person, right? That's not an informed place to get. <laughs> like, if you're, if, you're not doing that, right? Like, no one's, no one's making up their mind from Instagram talk things. Because, I hope. Are you? <laughs> yeah. When, when you read uh, pro-choice moral philosophers and scientists, they all agree that what, what's going on in there is a human person. Okay, it's, not, it's, it's really difficult to get away from that. But they say it's still okay. Now, there's one of two ways to say that it's okay to take a, a human life in the womb. Uh, there, there's one way that's, that's called tragic morality. It's the lesser of two evils. Greater evil will come from keeping the baby. Uh, therefore, you know, it, it, it's better to terminate. Uh, so tragic morality is not a Christian position. Okay? I, I know it makes some intuitive sense, but if we're talking about the image of God and what it means to, to respect the image of God, tragic morality doesn't really have a place in Christian ethics. It's, it's kind of opposite. It's, it's running Windows on Mac. Can, can that be done, computer people? It can? Dang it, that didn't work. Uh, it's running one computer program and another one that doesn't work. Like <laughs> Linux running. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know computers like you guys, but you get the point. It's, it's putting an electric engine in my gas car. Does that make sense? It doesn't work. Two, two things don't work together. That's still not work. Someone who's an engineer, they're like, no, you can totally do that, man. <laughs> I can do it for you right now. I can make your, your car an electric car. It'll save you tons. Uh, <laughs> all right, so, so the other argument is, is an interesting one. It's, it's the argument from bodily autonomy. And this, of course, comes from a woman named Judith Jarvis Thompson in 1971. She was a, a moral philosopher. She might be still around. But she says that, yes, the, the child in the womb has rights, but they are limited by the bodily autonomy Right, uh, of, of the mother. Okay. Now, she's a smart person. And she, if you read her, her article, it's called In Defense of Abortion, you can all find it. She, she, does, she makes a good case, but here's the thing. She does not believe in the image of God in human beings. She doesn't believe we're image bearers. That's completely absent from her thinking. So if you are a, a person who believes that we are made in the image of God, and you base human rights in that, if your position on abortion excludes the image of God, then you don't have a Christian position. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. That wasn't too bad, was it? I'm going to get emails. It's okay. We can talk about it. We really can. Um, but it's not just the taking of human life. There's also a lot of practices in our society that, that fail to recognize that people are fully human. For instance, in terms of percentage of population, we have more people behind bars than any other developed nation, by far. 
And you might say, well, we just have more criminals. It's like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> but also, you realize that like 30% of people who are currently behind bars are there because they can't afford bail. You know, the money you have to pay to get out while you await trial. They can't afford it, therefore they stay in there while they await trial. We literally have people behind bars because they don't have the money. And people who are currently walking free because they did have the money. That's perverse. That is not treating people equally. There's also, and the Bible talks a lot about this, the way we talk about other people. Right? If you ever read the book of James, it goes on and on about how we dehumanize each other with our speech. It is simply heartbreaking to me when I hear my fellow Christians talk about someone on the other political side as if they're not a human being. When we look out at people who are homeless and, and don't see humans there. We don't see the image of God. We're saying, ah, oh, it's trash. In fact, I hear people, Christians, call poor white people white trash all the time. That's dehumanizing. To call a human being bearing God's image trash. That should not be coming out of our mouths. To call people seeking refuge illegals. Right? Not recognizing they're human beings. So what is it for us to protect God's image? Well, it's to preserve life. Some of you guys, like I said, are medical professionals. That's your job. You preserve life all day, every day. Some of you guys, like, do you guys know what the stats are for edu you educators? If a man in America does not finish high school, do you know what the stats are on whether he'll end up dead or in jail? 80%. Educators save lives. Educators preserve life. Likewise, those of you who are in mental health and those of you who advocate for the environment, that's preserving life. And then also there is the, the role of the church in protecting human dignity. And this is a really important uh, part of what the church needs to be about. We should be first to oppose racism. We should be first to advocate for good governance that doesn't just benefit me, but benefits people who don't share my class, don't share my race. Right? To be, in, to be others centered in how we engage in civics. So how do we hit the bullseye? How do, well, first of all, there's supporting biological life. Like I said, shout out to moms. If you've had a baby, you've, you've experienced what it is, the joy of like hitting this bullseye, bringing forth new life. It is truly amazing. Those of you who have adopted, the same thing. Um, also, we can't just be concerned about ourselves. As God's people, we should be concerned to see our society transform so that human beings of all classes and all races can flourish within it. Now, we're not going to get there. Right? We're not going to hit this bullseye. But that doesn't mean we don't aim for it. 
That doesn't mean we're, 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 we're like, oh, the wall, no big deal, no one's perfect. And this is really important as well. We need to be about supporting spiritual life. As a church, we need to be faithful with the gospel. You know, there's always this pressure, I don't know if you guys feel it, but to compromise on the message of the gospel, to leave bits of it out so that it's not the gospel, so that it's kind of more palatable to our culture at large. But here's the thing. If we, Paul tells us if we change around the gospel, if we customize it to make it, you know, more flashy or whatever, we destroy it. And so as a church, being faithful with the gospel is of paramount importance. Think of this. Our community has the privilege of sharing a life-giving message. The message that when we receive it leads to eternal life. That's an amazing opportunity we have to be a life-giving people. Likewise, when as a community we go deeper with Christ, when we start to see and experience more and more of the life that God intended for us, that's supporting spiritual life. That's hitting the bullseye. So because human beings are made in God's image, We should not destroy God's image. We should instead preserve it. And most of all, the bullseye is to be a life-giving people. And no one showed us what it means to value the image of God like Jesus did. When we, with every single commandment, we say, and who, who could actually do this? The answer is Jesus. That's him. Okay? Think of this. He himself experienced biological life as God. It's a pretty good beginning. Jesus, as he, went, as he went through his ministry, we see him interact with people who were considered the dregs of their society. Outcasts, lepers, prostitutes, Gentiles. And he didn't look at them and see their labels. He looked at them and saw a human being. Not only that, but he submitted to dehumanization and murder. He himself, who was the greatest image bearer, had the image of God disrespected and destroyed in his his own self. But three days later, he rose again from death. You talk about life-giving? Not only is he the first one to walk in eternal life, the way God intended it to be, but he opened the way for each and every one of us as we believe in him to experience that resurrection life too. The last thing we see in the Bible, you know what it is? It's Christ speaking from the throne and he says, death is no more. There's a day coming when death is undone. And we, each and every one of us are invited to receive the gospel. There's nothing that you do to earn it. It is a gift. So that we might experience what it is to live without death. Please pray with me. God, that that day would come. God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we could see beyond this life to a day when you restore life, to a day when death is no more. Amen.